Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. If you follow along with Altos Research, you're, you're familiar with our weekly market data video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we like to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the industry from the leaders in the industry. Uh, each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the new sales, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. Uh, so if you need to communicate about this market with, with clients, with buyers and sellers, go to altosresearch.com, book a free consult with our team. We'll review your local market and talk about how to talk about the market uh, and use market data in your business. All right, let's get to the show. My guest today is Connor Sen. Connor is a Bloomberg opinion columnist who writes about financial markets, the economy, housing, cities, demographics. He's also the founder of Peachtree Creek Investments and has more than a decade of portfolio management experience and risk management. Connor is someone I look to for economic and financial market expertise. I always appreciate his, his insightful explanations about what's happening in the markets and the world. Uh, this is Connor's second appearance on the show. We're thrilled to have him back. The first one was two years ago. So like the world has changed dramatically in that time, uh, but it was a really neat time to, to have you on before because it was just about to change. Uh, so we can, I'm, we're going to revisit some of what we talked about then and, uh, and look at the next couple of years. So Connor, welcome back to the show. Mike, thanks for be having me again. It's, uh, I feel like when we talked last time, we were about to climb the, the really steep part of inflation rate hike mountain. And now we're on, we're kind of on the downslope. We're almost off the mountain. And so it's a great time to revisit that and think about where we're going from here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Like we had, we had rate hikes, we had that inflation kicking in. We, at the time we knew, I, I went back and listened to some of the show and, 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 and we knew that rates were climbing. We didn't really know how far they were going to climb. Uh, and so, so, you know, so they, I think in fact that we were talking about maybe, you know, mortgage rate, we talked in like, I think it was literally two years to the day that we're recording this February, early February, first of February, um, 22. And, uh, and, and so we knew it was a rising rate environment. And at the time though, we were seeing, you know, four and a half percent or maybe 5% mortgage rates. So when we look back at that period, what does that teach us? And like, what can we apply to the thinking now for 2024? Yeah, when I was listening to our, our show and we were just talking about how crazy hot the housing market was and how the spring of 22 could be even hotter than the spring of 21. And we were thinking about risks and it was like, I don't really see any because the housing market's just so crazy. There's so much demand, so little supply. And I think I was thinking that the move would happen on home price appreciation. And I guess if Jerome Powell was listening to our show, he would have said, if we convinced him, he'd be like, I guess rates need to go way, way higher than I thought because the housing market's just that hot and we have to cool it off. And the way I would think about what's changed between then and now, so Redfin puts out this weekly uh, housing market data piece, like your videos, maybe not as good, but you know, it's, it's some decent stuff. And the, the monthly mortgage payment that you have to commit to is sort of looking at prevailing mortgage rates and home prices is 40% higher today than it was two years ago. 
So I think that sort of shows just how hot the housing market was and how kind of unstoppable it was. But the the change happened in mortgage rates, not prices. Right. And the change happened in volume, sales volume, rather than prices. Right. And I think we were talking about low inventory and how that really protected us from bad outcomes and great underwriting and homeowners that were in good shape. And I think that speaks to the past couple of years where rates went up a lot. That really did cool off home price growth and transactions, but nobody had to sell. And that was certainly the story of 2023, lack of sellers, lack of inventory. And even though affordability was bad, you didn't really see much of a dip in prices. And I think 24 is interesting because you see a little more inventory, a few more sellers, but also rates are now seemingly coming down at least somewhat. And so how that all is going to shake out this spring and then later in the year. Yeah. And and rates are still higher than they were a year ago. Uh, They came down in December uh, but they've been climbing mostly for for like most of January they climbed uh, and uh, so there's a Fed meeting today rates ticked down a little bit but they were trying to the Fed is definitely trying to temper their their rate reduction their rate cut outlook for the year um, you're much more of a Fed watcher than I am like let's just go into it like let's talk about rates for this year what are we thinking like how does that play out? So I've been thinking we would get somewhere between at least 100 basis points of cuts this year. And the market's been priced more for 150. And kind of the way I would think about that is that the Fed has told us they're likely to cut 75 basis points. They're probably understating it a little bit because inflation's coming a bit lower than they expected in December. So maybe that's 100. And then there is some chance of a recession or a really bad outcome that would lead them to cut even more than that. So markets kind of price that in as an extra 50, like an insurance 50 that could come at some point. And that's showing up in mortgage rates, even if it's not in the Fed funds rate. Um, I actually just look at the screen and you know maybe it'll change by tomorrow or when this podcast goes live, but 30-year mortgage rates uh, today printed at 6.63%. So we're back into the 6.6s. And I think that, you know, could we get into the low sixes? Hopefully, maybe, probably. Um, I don't know if we get to the mid fives or, or lower than that, but I am mindful of two years ago, we kind of did this on the other side. And so I would say if there's a risk, it's probably too much lower rather than much higher. Okay. Um, and you don't think there's a risk right now of the economy coming in hotter than expected, which keeps rates, which keeps the Fed from cutting, uh, you know, maybe, maybe less than 100 basis points this year, or maybe doesn't start until later in the year. And therefore rates, you know, if, if uh, the market is just the other way, we get a jump in in rates. You think that seems unlikely? It so, seems unlikely. The, the strange thing right now, and so I want to kind of give myself some outs, is that we know that supply chains have gotten better and inflation, particularly for things you buy, cars, uh, things at the grocery store, electronics, there's basically no inflation in that stuff right now. Prices are still up a lot from two, three years ago, but the change now is very, very low. And as a result, because consumers are still getting wage increases, you're getting a wage increase and the stuff you buy isn't going up in price. And so people can buy more of it. And so December, and it looks like January as well, have been very strong for goods consumptions, people buying stuff. And that's starting to show up in some of the economic data. So it looks like that stuff's getting better. But at the same time, it seems like there's this generalized white collar hiring freeze going on right now. And in January, we certainly saw a lot of layoff announcements and they were different from what we saw last year, but sort of PayPal and Square and 
eBay and a lot of middling tech companies that maybe aren't as profitable as they could be have been restructuring their businesses. It's not that business is getting worse, but it's more of just like in a higher interest rate environment, investors are looking for profits, not growth, and companies feel like there's still more that they could do on that front. So the labor market has some signs of sogginess, but consumption has been very strong. And I think the labor market stuff and inflation being low is what is going to get us the cuts. But I guess if the goods consumption were to really pick up from here and lead to higher prices, then all bets are off. But that's not what I expect. Got it. So the slowing job market, it, it it's definitely slowing. It's still pretty, the job market is still pretty strong, but but definitely slowing around a bunch of the edges. Uh, and so that seems to be the the predominant force that that um, we will cut into this year is, is the expectation. The way I would think about the labor market right now is that if the unemployment rate is, call it, around 4%, it's 3.7, but for this, we'll just say 4 So 96% of people are employed. I would say about 90% are in pretty decent jobs in a good place, nothing to worry about. But if you are the fraction of people who have lost a job or might lose your job in one of these restructurings, it can be quite difficult to find a new job right now. So even if most people are in a very good spot, a small fraction are probably hurting. And again, it's not impactful at the GDP level, but for those workers, it is tough. And I'm sure there are some in the Bay Area in that spot right now. Yeah, for sure. I I know a few folks in that space. Uh, Tech recruiters are having a hard time. Uh, They went from having really good gigs to to being hard hard to to fill that uh, again. Um, I saw Google in their earnings this week had an interesting uh, dynamic where their CapEx, so spending on AI chips and investing in AI, was up like 50% year over year, but their headcount was flat. So they're kind of holding the line on payroll, but they're spending a bunch of money on NVIDIA chips to invest in AI. Right, 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 right. Uh, Fascinating. Okay, so if we look at that employment picture, uh, what does that tell us about the housing market? So I would say for the housing market, what matters more is interest rates rather than the labor market, just given what could change. Like if the unemployment rate went up a quarter of a percent, even a half percent, I don't think that would do much to impact housing demand relative to mortgage rates dropping another 50 basis points. So we have a really imbalance in terms of what would drive housing market activity and home prices where a little bit more softness in the labor market, if it comes with lower interest rates, which I think it would probably boost the housing market rather than weakens it. Right. So that's right. So we get in an environment where we get more unemployment that that uh, encourages the Fed to cut. We then the rate curve starts dropping. That actually spurs demand for housing more than uh, than joblessness um, uh, might might slow demand for housing. Right. Just I think that mortgage rates are so constraining right now. And so there's a lot of room for rates to fall potentially, but I don't think unemployment would go up a whole lot. So I just think that sort of the the risks of each moving um, are tilted more towards lower rates and more housing activity. Yep. And and while we're talking about housing and, and rate cuts and things, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when we were on, we were, you know, we had risk of recession looming, certainly looming in the media zeitgeist, right? People talking about it. I think I seem to remember that you were pretty much in the no recession camp because there was just too much momentum on too many fronts. And uh, and so um, when we think about 
like now, and I, in fact, I, I'm pretty sure I asked you this question was, you know, the, the yield curve, I think, was already inverted two years ago, um, which typically implies looming recession. It's still inverted. Uh, and uh, so what do you take on so your take on on risk of recession now? So the, the weird thing is that you could look at, it's easy to tell a story for both sides. Like I could say that if inflation now is basically at two, which it has been since June, like the, the eight month inflation has been about 2%. Um, and interest rates, the Fed funds rate is at almost five and a half. That's a very high real or inflation adjusted interest rate. So that's restrictive policies. That's concerning, especially at a time when the labor market has been slowing, particularly the white collar labor market, which we know there's the sogginess going on. And I could tell a story about how that would tip us into recession. But at the same time, existing home sales went from $6 million a year to below four. It's a huge decline in housing activity. And I think we both agree that housing activity will be up somewhat this year. We don't know if it's 5% or 15%, but it'll be up. And mortgage rates will be lower. Then they're not going back to 8%. I, I feel confident in saying that. So uh, the housing part of the economy will improve versus last year. And then the goods part of the economy, the movement of goods, freight, production, uh, stocking shelves at Costco and Walmart and Target, that should be a bit better. And then you have, there is this AI boom, which is maybe narrow, but that's some, still activity for the economy. You have the government investing in infrastructure and chips and green stuff and EV plants and battery plants. That seems like a lot of stuff that will keep us out of recession, even if PayPal and eBay are laying off people. So I think the, the risk of an overall recession is still quite low. But the, there are soft patches in the white collar labor market, white collar employers that we should pay attention to just in case those get worse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, are you a fan of the SOM rule for using unemployment as a, as a metric or a, a trigger? I think it's a reasonable thing to think about. And now that we've kind of maybe 3.3% unemployment was unsustainably low. And so now we're in the high threes. So if we were to get to four and a half percent, I would call that a recession. So I, I think the move from three, three to three, eight is not recessionary. But if we were to go up another 50 basis points from here, that would be in the in the territory of where we'd have to think about it. So that's OK. I, I think we could flirt with it, but I don't think we'll get all the way there. OK, got it. Um, and uh, but that also can happen quickly. It can. We can we can see that those the, the sentiment could change very quickly. The, the nice thing about the setup we have is that households are, do have great balance sheets. Well, home equity is a big part of that. And because housing really bottomed out so much last year, it's just hard for housing to be the trigger the way it has been in the past. And then it doesn't seem like tech will be the trigger either because a lot of the pandemic investments and hiring has already trickled out of the system and the AI boom probably has some legs to it. So if it's not housing or tech or government, it's just hard to see what would be enough to push the whole thing into recession. But there are certainly some soft spots. Yeah, and and um, the housing uh, and the household uh, balance sheet is really fascinating because while, as you mentioned, mortgage payments, average mortgage payments uh, for new purchases are up forty percent, everybody else in the in the country, ninety six percent of those people have really really low payments, like dramatically low debt payments uh, compared to previous years. And I think it's something like the effective mortgage rate that homeowners are actually paying is around three and a half percent, might even be a bit below that. And it's only rising very, very marginally. So even at the end of this year, it'd probably still be no higher than three, three, seven, five. So yeah, it's only yeah. four or 5 million people buy houses this year. Right. Um, 
And so only those folks have their, their payments reset. So, um, for, and, and that's why you can understand why consumers are still spending on stuff because they have significantly better cash flow than they, than they did in normal times and cycles like this, that, that, um, you know, they're, and it's dramatic. It's thousands of dollars a month for a lot of people. And I think if, if 90% of consumers or workers are benefiting from lower inflation and a half percent of workers are losing jobs or struggling, just the 90 way outweighs the half. And so in the aggregate, people are better off, even if, again, there are people hurting out there. I don't want to minimize that. Right, right, for sure. Um, and so, which is always a, a tricky part of the discussion when talking about measuring the, the economy and the strength of the economy, uh, especially on places like Twitter, you know, people are like, what about the people who are hurting? And, uh, and um, so that actually gets to uh, another, an interesting question that I'm, that like, uh, that I've been wrestling with lately. And that's the consumer, uh, interpretation of the economy has been super bearish compared to the data. Um, and, and what is your take on a, how we got there, um, and or it be like you know like when you talk about it, some people say, "Well, no, you're looking at the wrong data," or you know they are lying about the data. <laughs> you're right, like you know the like uh, people are out there that because they they want to talk like you know bullshit you into into buying more. I don't I don't know what the thing is, but like the, what? So what's your take on on that world of where uh, that can that mismatch of the consumer uh, view of the economy, and what does that mean for? like the rest of the year, where we go from here? So I think until the middle of 2022 was probably where I think consumers were right and the economists were wrong, where inflation was outpacing wage growth. And even though we were adding a whole lot of jobs and for the people who were getting jobs again, that was great news. In the aggregate, workers were falling behind. So there was no question that was happening. And then starting in mid-2022, which is when the Fed really ramped up their rate hikes and gas prices finally started coming off, there was about a, a one-year period where sort of uh, paychecks were outpacing inflation again, but people understandably were digesting all the inflation they had already absorbed. And so they didn't recognize that. Or if something goes in price from four bucks to six bucks, and then it goes to only 630, you say, oh, well, this is still a lot of inflation. So I I think even that made sense to me uh, where I could point to the data and say that real wages are growing again, but consumers had gone through this inflationary shock and it's understandable they'd be upset about that. And it finally seems like in the past three or four months, we're seeing this rebound in confidence. And I think it's because inflation's now come off a lot where consumers have had enough time to recognize that. The stock market's rallied again. And if you're watching the news, that's an easy way of saying, I guess things are picking up if the stock market's going up. And then because it looks like we're going to get interest rate cuts this year, mortgage rates finally fell. So when mortgage rates went to eight in October, I could get somebody saying, well, if mortgage rates are 8%, this is not a good economy. But now that they're back in the mid sixes and the stock market's at highs and inflation is lower and gas prices are still low, finally people are saying, oh, I guess things are kind of getting a little better. And, and it seems like now we're at the point where the data and sentiment is starting to, to sync up again. Okay. Okay. So um, that was maybe the consumer mismatch was uh, with, the, with the numbers was, was maybe it maybe still like tail end of pandemic weirdness uh, playing itself out? Well, I think the, especially the middle part of last year when inflation was falling, but mortgage rates were rising, that's kind of a strange thing that was going on. And in hindsight, maybe seeing the 10 year at 5%, when it looks like inflation's now getting close to two again, that was a sign that things were kind of 
we were due for this sort of rally in, in the bond market and decline in mortgage rates. And it's good that we're finally seeing that because that was a tough stretch. I'm sure for people, for your listeners, 8% mortgage rates were, I'm sure, a really, really tough time. Really tough, really tough. And, uh, and, and like I said, there's still, you know, so mortgage rates are still higher than they were a year ago. And as a result, inventory is greater than it was a year ago. And, and that spread is increasing. Like we can, you can still see that impact in the, in the, the housing market. And we can see though, as you point out that, that, uh, home sales will grow this year. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of signal of home price uh, increases pushing this year. So uh, it's a, it's fascinating to see those dynamics play out in a, in a world of unaffordability, where the, the, those payments are 40% higher. And I think what's tough is this is a market where housing is a market, but it's also something that a lot of people have to do regardless of where the market is. If you have a birth in the family or marriage or death in the family, schools, you know, the mortgage rates might be a certain place, but you still might have to make a move, a job change. And uh, so I think for a year, 18 months, people held off if they could. Maybe mortgage rates went from three to six or seven, and it's like, I'm not selling, I'm going to ride it out. But a lot of people, two years is a long time, and a lot of life changes happened. And I think we're seeing in the new listings where the sellers that are selling now probably just have to sell, and they've held out for a long time. And I actually, I'm seeing it in my circle, two people on my street. Um, are probably going to move this year, one for a job change, one for just more space. The kids are getting older. And we haven't had a house for sale in my street in 16 months, and I think we're going to have two in the next six months. So I'm seeing it locally as well. That's an interesting anecdote, yeah. Um, okay, so let's wrap up the uh, the view of 2024. Um, we, have, we have, you know, year expectation is, is uh, 100 basis points cut in the fed from the fed um so that brings uh you know that's not the that's not mortgage rates per se but it has ultimate downstream impact on mortgage rates and you and but the market's priced for 150 basis point move on the fed um and you're assuming fewer less cuts because you're assuming basically a stronger economy for longer well i think it's sort of the 80% base case is, is four cuts, but the other 20% is probably like another 100 plus basis points of cuts. And so that averages out to 50 more. But I, I mean, the risk of 150 is much more likely than 50. So if I were trying to figure out what do I do about rates, I think the odds of only getting two cuts is very, very low, given where everything's shaking out. Okay, got it. And, um, and therefore, wage growth continues this year? Moderates, but probably kind of closer to that pre-pandemic 3 to 4% is where I think we're settling out. I mean, that's still, a, that seems like a terrific gain uh, for, for mortgage rates, or for, for, uh, for, for income, right? Yeah, I think this is a year in the labor market of general stability. And the, the benefit for households is really going to be more about lower inflation and lower financing costs. Um, and then, um, all right, so are there other things things like dynamics about the 2024 economy that you think are getting underplayed uh, that we should like pay more attention to, uh, you know, or, or be, be aware of? So I think there's still room. We've had the supply chain normalization theme for 18 months, maybe two years. And I think there's still room for that. And Fed Chair Powell spoke about that at the press conference yesterday. And like Delta Airlines is a great example of how this works in practice, where for so long, a lot of companies were looking at how are we doing versus 2019, 
rather than year over year because the year over year changes were so noisy. And Delta feels like 2023 finally represents a stable new normal of demand. And so they can optimize their operations and resources for that demand footprint. And they think there's still more room to squeeze out productivity from that because their flight operations are back to 2019 levels, but they're 10% overstaffed versus 2019. So they think they can grow capacity without growing headcount, which is sort of good in the economic uh, scheme. But again, speaks to not, not a need for hiring. They said pilot hiring is down 50%. Interesting. Okay. Um, so, uh, let's shift to demographic trends. Um, I know you write a lot about millennials and, and, you know, their part in the cycle. So tell me what we need to know about, about millennials now. Well, I think we're now at the point where the, the average millennial is probably 33 to 35, like born in the late eighties to early nineties. And so they're fully in the phase of entry-level starter home. Um, phase. And, and I, we talked about that two years ago, how that was the opportunity probably for another couple years. But I, I think it's interesting to look at the apartment market, entry-level housing, and then trade-up housing is kind of, now it's sort of like that's Gen Z, young millennials, old millennials. And you were seeing in the apartment market that that's now at least temporarily oversupplied. And we're seeing basically no rent growth. And it's sort of demand is still strong, but we just had so much construction and so much Demand, our production is still coming online over the next couple of years that there's not really a lot of rent growth in our future. And we'll have to see about when that comes back. But millennials have now moved out of the, the renting phase and are, are into the buying phase. And we're now at the point where sort of starter homes are probably strong for another few years. But my guess is the, the big home price uh, appreciation has mostly happened in that part of the market at this point. So if you're a builder, you can sell profitably. There's still more demand. But if you're buying a starter home today, I probably wouldn't look for a lot of appreciation over the next three to five years. And I think the opportunity that's on the horizon is more on the trade-up market. Okay, so so starter homes, there's still demand there, but then there's a uh, sort of a, that demand starts to taper off as the millennials age out of starter homes. And so there's, um, uh, that'll be interesting to see if that weakness plays out there. Um, you also talked about apartment supply. And so we've been building a lot of apartments. Um, have you paid attention to regional impact of like where we're building those apartments? Yeah. So it's interesting where because so much of the construction was in Charlotte and Austin and Phoenix, Dallas, Atlanta, those markets have negative rent growth. And we could see another year of negative rent growth just because there is so much supply coming even though net absorption has been quite strong because they do have the demographics, people are moving there. It's just that supply growth has outpaced demand growth. Although with mortgage or interest rates where they are, we are seeing new, new apartment starts have tapered off, which should impact supply in 2025, 2026. So that's probably the opportunity for rents to rebound in a couple of years. Um, starter homes is probably where apartments were three to five years ago, where we're going to build a whole lot of them but prices have already moved up a lot. And if you buy a starter home today, it's, it's a place to live and you need a place to live. But, um, you know, probably if you're going to get home price appreciation, it's more from a decline in mortgage rates rather than something in just starter homes appreciating. Just because that monthly payment is so high, it's hard to see how that's going to increase from here for another two, three years. Yeah, it really is hard to see. Um, and it's why the, the appreciation we're seeing right now is was surprising to me um, because, because we are bumped up against that affordability challenge. 
The um, so on uh, the the um, the construction side. So we we had a, a good boom in starter home, and I think we can see that in things like the size of the homes has actually been falling a little bit, um, which is a which is a bucks a trend of previous years, I think. Um, uh, and 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 the, you know one of the surprises for me last year was what a what a blockbuster year for the home builders twenty twenty three was even while rates were high, unaffordability was high, uh, you know, and we had fewer, uh, we had fewer transactions overall, but it was a banner year for a lot of home builders. Yeah. They were, what happened there. They had the perfect storm of, there was very little resale supply. People needed to buy and then mortgage rates were high. So builders could offer mortgage rate buy downs and they could sell, even when mortgage rates in the market were seven, they could sell at five and a half. And then there was very little inventory for sale. I think I saw a Redfin story today that 32% of all homes for sale right now are new homes. And historically, that was more like 10 to 12. So we're probably peaking on that level, on that metric, just because resale supply is picking up. But it just, I think we'll look back at 2023 as like as good as it gets for home builders. They'll still do fine, but I think they'll look back fondly at what a great year it was for them. Uh, And they were well positioned going into this one as opposed to, having too many in, in the, the process that they, they, there weren't places where they were over, uh, built or, you know, we, it seemed like there's a lot of starts underway, but. Well, and one more thing they had going for them was that they had this huge backlog of supply chain issues. So their, their build time really extended. And as that compressed and most builders have said that that's largely fixed at this point, they were able to convert inventory into cash and then turn their inventory a lot faster. So just, from a kind of return on capital basis, just much, much better. And they've also repaid debt. Their their leverage is pretty low. And for the first time, I would say since the mid 2000s, they're in a position where they can play offense and look to expand into new markets and do more stuff, which is interesting. And I think a theme for this year, I'm watching to see what they do now that land costs have gone up, but they don't have to repay debt anymore. Yeah, that is interesting. And does that mean that there are like tertiary markets that start to benefit like Greensboro? It seems that place? way. Yeah. And also just the sort of outer Phoenix rather than core Phoenix, just because if you are trying to hit a $400,000 price point for entry level buyers with land prices where they are, maybe you can't do that in core Phoenix anymore. So you've got to go farther out. You've got to go to markets where maybe builders traditionally haven't been. Maybe the the builders that are there are smaller, less efficient. And so a DR Horton can go in and sort of use its scale to throw its weight around and undercut existing builders. So that's something I'm watching this year. Okay. And do you watch, um, have you watched some of the regional differences, not necessarily maybe with home builders, but also in the markets. Um, one of the trends that I thought fascinating from 2023 was we had the big slowdown starting July 1 of 22. Uh, and we had buyers and sellers pull back. We had our first price uh, adjustments so that by like April of 23, we had negative year over year home price appreciation across the country. April, May timeframe. But then by the end of the second half of the year, we, we moved back to home price climbing. Um, regionally, uh, you know, one of the things I noticed was the Western, the, the boom markets, the Western boom markets slowed way down in 22. Most of those recovered 
in 23. Like Phoenix, you mentioned Phoenix, and, and Phoenix surprised me by how quickly it recovered in 23. But Austin, Texas did not. Uh, and a few others did not. Do you have a take on what was going on that? So my thought is twofold. If you look at an Austin buyer, because prices went up so much and then mortgage rates went up so much, just the, the payment shock was ridiculous. And so it really just had to come down. And then if you think about, well, who's the, the Austin buyer? It's probably somebody who lived in California and maybe they had the mortgage rate lock-in. So they had a 3% mortgage rate in, you, you know, Milpitas or uh, Dublin or something in the East Bay. And they were like, well, I'd like to move to Austin, but now I'm caught in the mortgage rate lock-in. And so people were stuck in California. When existing home sales are below 4 million, people aren't leaving or buying. And so I think that if rates come down, you kind of get this double benefit for Austin where payments get better and then Californians can sell and move. And then you can get that sort of migration pipeline going again. Okay, so you think that if rates... Uh, fall substantially this year, like mortgage rates drop low sixes, then that will probably uh, re reignite some of the 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 California Texas migration pattern. Yeah, higher migration is a big theme for me this year. Again, if if existing home sales go to four and a half million, even then the move from three eight three nine to four and a half that means more sales and more migration, because a lot of buyers are are migration buyers, and so just. More transactions should mean more migration. Great. Okay. So what other implications of higher migration should I think about? Well, it's sort of, so again, it leads means more demand for your Boise's and Austin's, your big pandemic markets that have been shut off for two years. And then also if people can then leave New York and California again, then that opens up inventory in those markets for people who maybe want to buy in New York and California. So it just kind of unclogs the whole system and gets things going again. Great. Does uh, Are there other implications like equities or other like other implications about higher migration that, that like you play that theme out further? I mean, I think just there's so many, you think about the, the sort of economic impact of a home sale, it's probably about 10% of the home price because you have the, the mortgage that the lender, the underwriter, um, the appraisal, maybe some furniture, moving costs, uh, photographers, paint. There's just so much that goes into that. So if you get another, let's say half a million home sales this year, at an average price of four hundred thousand, oh gosh, I'm going to have to do math on the on the on the spot. I don't know. You, you take ten percent of that; it's a pretty big number, and it goes all to it's very labor intensive income because it goes to people who are directly involved in the housing process. So, a lot of housing related industries and communities stand to benefit. Right. So, and and so higher higher migration flexibility uh, it generally leads to uh, is another uh, another step of of economic strength for 2024. I think so. And it's, it might not be a big boom impulse, but it helps mitigate recession risk. That's probably the key story. Right. Okay, great. Yeah. Just home sales up 10% probably doesn't happen during recession. Right. Yes. Okay. That That's great. And it, and it also speaks to your point about um, why the rate adjustment is, is probably a bigger deal than, uh, than an employment adjustment. Uh, you're, you're like a, like it probably, is a better, a, a more impactful for the housing market than than just having employment start, unemployment start to rise. Yeah, I think an interesting way of thinking about this is if two years ago, supply chain problems meant lumber and appliances and garage doors and trucking and all that, the big supply chain problem remaining in the economy is interest rates. And that's something the, the Fed can directly fix whenever they want. And so I think most of the problems in the economy can be fixed with lower interest rates. 
Therefore, the Fed can really mitigate recession if and when they get spooked. Right. The big supply problem uh, remaining is rates, is interest rates. Okay. That's an excellent way for me to think about it. So higher migration is one of your big themes for 2024. What are your other big themes? I I think it's normalization in the economy and then the, the impact of lower interest rates and it's sort of, it's easy to think about the direct impact of, well, if mortgage rates go from seven to six and a half or six and a quarter, that means this for payments. But I think so much of the past two years, we've thought about vibes in the economy. Like, what are the vibes like? And I think there is momentum in the economy where if things are getting better, that tends to have a life of its own. So if, if you just have businesses that have had negative comps for 18 months and they, those comps turn around, they feel better, they spend more, and that has some flywheel effects. So I, I think when we get into spring, as those those rate cuts begin and the, the year-over-year comps get better, what does that do to business sentiment and consumer sentiment? All right. That is, uh, that's excellent. So uh, we, go, we go from the vibe session to the vibe expansion. Right, exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So um, uh, has your view of the second half of the decade changed? Like what? So we talk about themes for 2024. What are themes for the rest of the decade that we should be thinking about? I think the millennial housing story is going to be with us for years. And it's it's kind of this, this thing that'll live in the background. And maybe at some point it'll be front page, but they're just this wall of demand that is going to be there for a long time. And there are people who want to get into entry-level housing. And by the time they do that, it might be at an age where traditionally people have looked at trade-up housing. And so if rates and affordability ever allow it, I think you could see rapidly just people push into the next phase of, of housing as, as they can afford it. And then if we're really worried about like a big recession risk, to me, it would be when like AI spending right now, I'm not going to talk people out of an AI boom because I'm sure there's going to be one. But what's interesting is these chips are so expensive and, and sort of play the AI game is so expensive. And yet there aren't any business models associated with like nobody knows how to convert an AI chip into a dollar of profit yet. We're all just kind of trying to figure it out. So Microsoft built its co-pilot and there's ChatGPT and, the, and you know, the, the image viewers, but there aren't any profits from this yet. And so if there were ever a point where the, the AI CapEx were to tail off at the same time that maybe the EV battery plant stuff were to tail off, that could be kind of the big investment collapse that would be um, associated with a recession. So that, that would be like, if you're looking for like a real recession, like we've seen in the past, like 2001 or 2008, that's the sort of thing I would worry about, not PayPal laying people off or interest rates being a little too high. It's when does this big um, AI green investment cycle end? And that's probably still a year, years away, but it's probably happens before the end of the decade. It wouldn't surprise me. Right, right, right. So we have a normal, like it is a mega boom in the same way that the, that, you know, early dot com or or mobile, like it's another one of those phases, and so it's got to go through a, a a cycle of its own. Okay, that's a good one to keep in my mind. Uh, demographically, uh, when do the boomers finally sell their houses? Yeah, I I keep pushing it out. At this point, I think it's like maybe early twenty thirties because it's you know people are living longer and they're staying in their houses longer, so. It's probably not until people are in their 80s. And then that's really, you don't even start getting that until the latter part of this decade. And then for it to show up in the aggregates, it's probably not until the early to mid 2030s. And that will certainly free up supply for millennials. But, you know, what kind of condition will that supply be in? Like, will those be considered trade up housing if 
they haven't gotten the, any work in 20 or 30 years. So that to me is, again, where the, the trade-up housing story will be a big one in five or 10 years as millennials are looking for those homes. And it's maybe you can finally get that house in Pasadena, but it hasn't gotten any work since the 1990s. And you'll have to put probably hundreds of thousands of dollars into these homes to make them equivalent to what a Toll Brothers can build, uh, you know, today. Right. Uh, the difference is that you're you're doing it in Pasadena rather than way out in the Inland Empire somewhere. Right. So that'll that'll shift the the residential construction impact of it from the exurbs and maybe tertiary markets back to core markets, just because those those core neighborhoods haven't opened up in so long. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Uh, so really though, 2030s before we see that, that kind of, I think so. I think it'll start getting a little better, uh, by the, the latter part of this decade, because builders are building more. looks like we can probably get to 1.2 million single family starts, maybe a little bit more than that. And, you know, as sort of the, the, the imbalance between millennial demand and boomer supply narrows, then things start getting a little bit better. But I, I think in terms of like, when does that boomer supply really hit the market? Probably not for another eight to 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and people have been talking about it for 10 years already. Well, I mean, we talked about the boomer retiring thing and it, it seems like until COVID, you really didn't feel it in the labor market. And we finally just hit that point now. And if you think housing lags the labor market by maybe 10 or 15 years, then we still have a ways to go. We still have a ways to go. That's fascinating. Okay. Um, uh, so... There's where we can see cyclical uh, changes in the second half of the decade. We still have mostly uh, millennial tailwinds pushing us through through the second half of the decade. It shifts as you from from starter homes to the trade up homes, and as as the millennials roll into their forties, um, and and then maybe after that. There's there's finally uh, space in the inner like the the close in markets, uh, which shift us to a a rebuild mode rather than a, than a build from scratch. Does that sort of sound like the? Yeah, I, th- I think unless we get a big wave of immigration, we're not going to need a lot of increase in housing supply in the 2030s. It'll just be about fixing what we have, and maybe that means some urbanization or gentrifying. We'll have to see. I mean, that's we can do a podcast on it in six or eight years and see how it goes. There you go. We'll still be yeah. at it. Um, the uh, so you are really great at like connecting the dots and putting that framework around uh, those the 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 um, uh, you know the the trends and, and describing it. Obviously, you, you write it very well in Bloomberg. So, um, what? Tell me about what like you what information you consume to put those pieces together. Tell me about like. Can you teach me to build some of the frameworks that you do? Like, talk to me about how that works. So I I obviously love your videos. I love the Redfin Weekly uh, uh, update that they they do. Um, I love going through the home builder earnings calls just to understand what they're seeing and thinking because they're the ones building the homes. So what better way of figuring out the housing market than going to the the people who are building them? And then sort of your John Burns research, Allie Wolf, um, a lot of the people we talk to just... You know, anyone involved in the industry to see what they're seeing and thinking and then just kind of watching just broad economic stuff to see what pops up related to that. So unemployment rate, stock market, you know, things can change year by year. So you always have to be nimble and pay attention to see, you know, I don't think weight loss drugs will change house change housing much, but things always pop up and so you never know what the next thing's gonna be. Yeah. Uh right, exactly. And are there um 
are there like uh, other macro data sources that you like go like this is my my daily or my weekly check in to see how I am connecting the dots for the world? I think just the same stuff as everybody else. So the, the reports from the government, obviously Bloomberg, I'm going to give them a shout out and um, just kind of the, the big sources. It's We all kind of have the same information and just about how we interpret it. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's fair enough. Fair enough. So, okay. Um, what, let's see, what didn't we cover yet today? What's uh, what is like, one of the questions I like to ask my guests is like, what are the headlines getting wrong right now? Uh, you know, where are we, um, uh, what are we missing? Um, yeah, nothing immediately comes to me. We've covered a lot. I think just we're so shocked by all the economic trauma of the past 20 or 25 years. And we're waiting for that next thing. And it, it just seems like we're generally in a period of stability like we haven't seen since, since the 90s. And I don't know if we're going to get a big boom or bust over the next two years, but hopefully we can just build the homes we need, people can move into them, and we can try to get some stability restored to the housing market rather than this just crazy one we've had seemingly forever. But um, I'm hoping that 2024 is the start of normalcy rather than just the craziness of the past few years. Okay. I like it. Start of normalcy. Um, speaking of normalcy, uh, one question that people have been asking me lately is, uh, are there election year impacts that we should be planning for or expecting. Uh, they ask about housing. Um, do you have, are, are there, are there election year things that, that come into play? I mean, the stock market in election years often is kind of a grind just because people are just waiting around to figure out what the election is going to mean. And it's, you know, I obviously don't want to step into that too much, but I don't know that the 2016 election had a huge impact on the housing market. And we, because politics has become so all-consuming, we assume it's going to have a big impact on every industry. And there are certainly impacts, but I think it's sort of more psychological than direct. Like this is, I mean, I guess you would say the salt in, or maybe mortgage interest rate deduction with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. But I don't, I don't feel like policy is a big part of the debate of this election. It's really much more identity existential, but no one's really campaigning on their housing plans. So I don't right. know that uh, there will be a big housing impact regardless of what happens. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think that's a fair, a fair uh, um, assessment. The, uh, and, and looking at housing in election years, you know, uh, 2020, you know, was like that, that was, you know, it was a crazy year. It had nothing to do with the election. Uh, 2016, like was just, uh, you know, middle of an up decade, uh, 2012 was just turning the corner from the, at 2008, like all of those are far bigger macro global things that impacted housing, uh, where the, and, and they were essentially independent of, the uh, of the election. Right. And I think that's going to be the case again this year. I don't feel like anything that happens on the campaign trail will really have a big impact on housing. Connor, it's been terrific. Uh, I really appreciate your time and your insights. Um, I got pages and notes that I've been taking as we're talking. So uh, I always appreciate your insight. Um, uh, so Connor Sen on Twitter, the Bloomberg Opinion column, any, any other place that you're publishing lately? Those are, those are still the main ones. 
I feel like I should get more on LinkedIn, but I don't do a lot there. But maybe that'll be a New Year's resolution for this year to get a little more active there. I'm trying to do a little more on LinkedIn as well, like diversify just a little bit. Um, and uh, it feels weird going, okay, I just posted this on Twitter and I put it. <laughs> I'm simple. Um, yeah. But uh, okay, well, I, I really appreciate it. And everybody, this is the Top of Mind podcast. Uh, and if you enjoyed this show, I. Uh, always like to ask for uh, a uh, reviews. Give us a bunch of stars on your favorite podcast network that helps other people find uh, the show. And um, uh, we'll be back in, in uh, another. We'll be back next week with more data and, and another couple of weeks with more uh, with another interview. So, uh, thanks everybody, Connor. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here.